0: So in chapter 12, verse 11, Paul expresses this fear. The fear that he might find a community that is not united, but one that is rather fragmented. Not one that is characterized with holiness, where people are dealing seriously with their sins, but one that is marked with great immorality where there are people who are not dealing, repenting, turning away from their sins in spite of previous exhortations to do so. As he puts it, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of these of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You can certainly understand Paul's fear, and thank God that he's letting us in on that. No pastor looks forward to dealing with a broken, fragmented church, one where there is unrepented sin. No one should ever look forward to having a conversation, to confronting someone, of sin. So Paul understands that his presence with the Corinthians may not be one where there is joy and the celebration that he may have to mourn. That his coming may also involve severity. As a pastor, your heart is tender for the flock. You must, when necessary, use severity. But it is not something that you enjoy or want to do. It's only as needed. So the apostle Paul is saying, I am looking forward to seeing you. But I do have fear about what my presence may mean to you. You may see me mourning and and I may be mourning and and having to use strong words and even appear to be rash because of what's happening in your midst. So in verse 15 of chapter 13, before he comes again, he's calling them, he says, take time to examine yourself. Examine yourself, he says, to see whether you are in the faith. There is still time to, to repent. And right before he gets to the benediction, in chapters 13, the same chapter, verse 11 through 13, he gives them a number of quick exhortations. Exhortations that really we. Re- Represent a summary of things that he had already communicated to them. But he says, I am going to come in one more time. Heal me. Take heed to these words and all of this exhortation are in the present imperative. That is, keep working on these things you may have been doing, them. continue till I come to see you finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Rejoice. Again, the theme of joy is quite prevalent in Paul's letters. Regardless of the circumstances, rejoice. Rejoice for God's grace in your midst for what he's already done. But I suppose here Paul may also be saying, rejoice in the hope of future grace. Rejoice with me in the hope that God will work, even begin to restore you. What God will do. Aim for restoration, but is mindful of the fact that things were not in alignment. In the church, things were damaged. Things were broken, so he wants them, and the way that he uses is to put things back in order. He wants the church to aim and work toward that whatever has been broken to be put back in order. Comfort one another. Midst of the struggles, don't stay isolated. Comfort, stick together, strengthen each other. By the comfort that God provides. Agree with one another. He urges them. This will just agree just for the sake of agreeing. You know, I agree with you. I agree. Not not, not that, but agree. Agreement around apostolic doctrine, around the truth. Of the Gospel, around the truth that he has been communicating to them, agree, you have one mind, live in, in, live in, pa- in, in peace, live in peace. He's not telling them here about the peace of God, which is a result of our justification. We' are at war with God. God declares us righteous, and we are at peace, not that not that's not the peace or the peace of God when we are. Ex- Anxious? We pray. We come before God, and God gives us peace. Rather, what He has in mind is peace with one another, peace with one another, peace horizontally. Don't tear each other apart. Live in peace. Live in peace. And 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 of course, all of these exhortations are connected as you agree with one another. Part of what should flow from that is the ability then to to be walking in the same direction, to be at peace and to live peacefully with one another. As you realize, as you look at the gospel and you realize, wait a minute, we are one body. (laughs) We're born of one spirit. We have one hope. We have one faith. We're partakers of one baptism. We serve one God and Father of all. Father of us all, who is over all and in us all. So as you dwell on that then, you're going to live at peace. Greet one another with a holy holy kiss. It's interesting that Paul would add something like that. Maybe so basic. But he's exhorting them to find tangible ways. Perhaps for us would be more than that. We'd go have dinner together regularly. Hug each other. I don't know. Kiss each other. Kiss. Something very intimate. Kiss each other. What he's saying is, your family have like it. Kiss. Even in those days, it was not just customary for everybody to kiss each other. He says, a holy kiss. Nothing sensual or sinful. That, but a kiss that members of a family give to each other because of deep love and affection. So Paul is saying to a church that's been fractured, that has no division. All of that, he's exhorting them. And he says kiss each other. Which may force you if it's hard to kiss. Why is it hard to kiss? Guys should be kissing my brother and sister. So the very exhortation to kiss calls them to the other things that Paul has asked them to do. Of course some will say well I am not kissing. (sighs) And miss out on all the other things, but Paul expected them to to take that step, to be affectionate, to show our affection. And by the way, it's something very good for us, just a little side note. When we find it hard to express affection, it may not just be because, well, I just, I don't know, there's nothing. There may be a deeper reason. It may be because there are issues deep in our hearts that make it hard for us to express affection. Just a little side note here. So Paul wants them to take heed to these things. He's exhorting them to focus on these things in preparation for his visit. he says, as you do these things, there's a promise. The God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love. That's as an outcome of this. As you are taking heed to this exhortation, God will shower you with his love and peace. The God of love and peace. By the way, the only reference in the Bible for God as a God of love. Of course, the Bible says in First John that God is love. The only place where the Bible says God is God, the God of love, God of love and peace will be with you. You will experience an increasing degree of the presence of God in your midst. Now, how in the world does a weak, troubled, fractured church characterizing with biting and fighting and quarreling how in the world do they go out and carry out carry those exhortations that Paul had just given them? Where do they find what it takes to respond to what they're being called to do? To mend that which is broken. Have you ever had to deal with fracture in your relationship? Not easy. Where do we find the grace for that? Where do we find grace? To listen to those very exhortations ourselves. That brings us to our main verse this morning. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All of you. So in this benediction... In this Trinitarian benediction, I'm sure you can see that, Paul is calling on God himself, the one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's calling on God, he's crying out to God to pour out his blessings on the church so that they would be able to respond obediently to his call, and see the purposes of God fulfilled in the midst. That's what the benediction is for. How are you going to be the people that God calls you to be, Corinthians? Where it's not where you are not known for your quarrels, for jealousy, for biting, for the fractures, for the lack of love. How is that going to be possible? It is going to be possible as Almighty God Himself, the God who saves you. Pours out His love, His grace, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a few moments then to look at these three things that the church at Corinth needed to be God's people. The things that I believe we all need individually and certainly as a church to be the people of God in this community. Not to survive, but to be a vibrant community. The community that God wants us to be here at this time in history. God knows we need Him. Paul knew that the Corinthians needed God. And this morning, brothers and sisters, we need God, but have good news. The good news is God is not reluctant to bless. He's eager to bless you, you, and me, all of us, where we are. He can do what we cannot do ourselves. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be, he says, with you all. Not some of you. Be with you all. The grace of God is central to Paul's theology. You read all of his epistles and you see it's grace and grace and grace. What is grace? What is the grace that he has in view? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of grace of God's unmerited favor towards sinners on the basis of their identification with Christ. God's unmerited favor. Not to good people, but to sinners. And I read earlier this week someone say, it's not just unmerited favor, but it is demerited favor. I like that. It's not that God showed favor to people who did not deserve it. But rather, God showed favor. God has shown favor to people who deserved the very opposite of favor. In other words, God does not show favor to us from a point of neutrality. Where we did not do bad things against God. When you were just there. That's not the picture that the Bible gives us. Of who we are as sinners before God. The Bible describes us as rebels. Rebels are not passive. Enemies of God. That's how the Bible calls us. And it is to those who were his enemies. To those who are rebels, to those who committed treason, who said, you will not rule over me. You've made heaven and earth, but I am king. That's what we say as sinners before God. Our sin may manifest itself in very different ways. But at the heart of of our sinful condition is God will not rule over me. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3 tells us before the grace of God came to us and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind not the desires of God and were by nature therefore because of that children of wrath like the rest of mankind the Corinthian Christians had experienced the saving grace of Christ Earlier in the letter in chapter 8, 9, the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. They had known the grace of Christ at the beginning of their Christian journey. Now the apostle wants them to know the same grace more and more throughout the rest of their journey in whatever season they're in so that the grace of Jesus would abound in their lives, changing them, transforming them into his likeness, making them vessels for his use. That's what he's asking for. His wish is for the grace of Christ to not be sprinkled, but to be poured out upon them for their growth and for the glory of Christ in and through them. Christ wants to be magnified in his church. See that what Paul says right about, I don't know what's going to happen to me in whatever condition I'll be. If I'm going to die, going to but what I want is for Christ to be magnified in me. Let die, let life or death, Christ to be magnified. We want the grace of God, the grace of Jesus to be magnified in our lives. That's what Paul wanted for the Corinthian church. Paul had labored hard in their midst. He was well aware of the challenges, as we said earlier, that they were facing as they battled the threefold enemies, the flesh, the world, the devil. He exhorts them, as we said earlier, to rejoice, to aim for restoration, comfort, agree with one another, to live in peace, to be affectionate, as we said. And he does so understand that they do not have the resources. They don't have what it takes. He understands that a Apart from the grace of Jesus, apart from Jesus providing, pouring out his grace on them, the flesh will prevail. The flesh will continue to prevail. The works of the flesh will continue to take over in their midst. Taking all sorts of forms, quarrels, jealousy, as he says, envy, division, and all sorts of immorality. Apart from the provision of the grace of Christ, Paul understands that the Corinthian church will continue to conform itself to the patterns of this world, finding glory in vanity, looking to men for what only God provides, continuing to fight over who are we following, Paul, Cephas, the things that the world does. Apart from the provision of the grace of Christ, Paul understands that they will fall victim to the schemes of the evil one. They will listen to the voice of the enemy, the enemy of their souls who comes to them and disguises himself as an angel of light, seeking to seduce them and causing them to embrace a false gospel, a gospel that is not a gospel at all. But that it wasn't just for them. It is the same with us. Apart from the grace of Christ. We will be defeated by the forces of the flesh. The works of the flesh will be manifest in our lives. We will find ourselves conforming more and more. The patterns of the world. And Satan will have a field day. Are you all aware, are we aware of this possibility and therefore of our need for grace? Do we see grace as something extra? Something a little dessert added to the main meal that we bring to the table? Or do we realize what Jesus himself said, apart from me, apart from my grace, you can do nothing. And it's not just about being able to recite, define grace, but it is to know the grace of Christ. To know the grace of Christ. So that's what Paul is praying for. Grace. What does grace do? What does, how does the grace of God do? The grace of Jesus work. The grace of Jesus to protect us, to protect us from evil within us, from evil outside of us. Grace to pardon and cleanse. We just sing that. To pardon and cleanse within. When you have fallen in sin, or you've sinned against each other, we've sinned against each other. And we said, no, there is no way in the world I can ever forgive this. And you realize that you can. But the Bible commands you. So what do you do? Close your ears to God's word and go the path of death or fall on your knees and say, Jesus, what you command, you give the grace to fulfill it. Grace to protect, grace to pardon and cleanse, grace to empower us and strengthen us in our weaknesses. And all of us are weak when we see ourselves rightly. We know that. Paul knew that he needed the grace of Jesus. Earlier in this letter, Paul speaks about the thorn in the flesh that was given to him providentially. And how he prayed three times that God would remove that thorn. You like being weak? How many of us like that? I do not. So Paul prayed, take away this thorn that shows my weakness, that exposes me, perhaps to others the Lord says what to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, thank you, and that's enough. Paul understood, and he, he went so far as saying, not just it's okay, Lord, okay, grace, all right. Paul says, I will boast <laughs> all the more. Gladly, he says. Of my weaknesses. May God help us do that. Why? Not so that I can be look great as oh look at how humble he is. No. I will boast all the more gladly of all my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with witnesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Wasn't just Paul. Christians of centuries have experienced the enabling power of the grace of Jesus. Polycarp, you may have heard of him, the Bishop of Smyrna, not Smyrna here. Smyrna, one of the early church fathers, who loved his Lord, who knew his Lord. He lived in the second century, not too far from the events that we see recorded in Scripture. He experienced the saving grace of Jesus in his own life as he faced what may have been his life's greatest trial. Polycop had been brought to the magistrate and accused of being a Christian. The magistrate looked at him, this old man, and he was moved. Who wants to see an old man die? Nobody should want anybody die, but imagine. So even so, this magistrate is trying to find a way to get him out of this. So he pleaded with Polycarp to offer incense to the image of Caesar. A small thing, Polycarp, think about it. What harm is there, he asked, to say, Lord Caesar, and to offer incense, and all that sort of things, and to save yourself. Polycarp was not moved by the thought of preserving his life, so he quietly said, I I'm not going to do what you advise me. So he was led, therefore, to the arena. And there again, the proconsul urged him to deny his faith. Have respect for your age, old man. Take the oath, and I shall release you. Curse Christ. We know you may not mean it, but just say the words. I'm adding that. Polycarp replied, 86 years. I have served him. And he never did me any wrong. How am I to blaspheme my king who saved me? So they brought him to the stake where he prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy well-beloved and ever-blessed Son, I thank thee that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour. Jesus call Polycarp to suffer for his name. And in this hour, in that very hour of his greatest trial, Jesus was present with his grace. To give him the strength to glorify Jesus, to magnify Jesus, even through death. How about us? Where are you this morning, brothers, sisters? Where are you? Maybe this morning, to Thomas, I can tell you. Can we talk after church? Or maybe, no. Um, things are so bad, I can't talk. I don't know. Where are you, dear friends? Maybe right now you're feeling battered. I don't know what your week was like. Discouraged. Defeated. All of the words. Depressed, perplexed, feeling abandoned by Christ. Perhaps burdened with shame and guilt over sins, failures. I don't know. But wherever you may be your Savior knows. And he not only knows where you are better than you know it yourself, he is also ready near you to meet you with his all-sufficient and inexhaustible grace. You say, oh, he gave me grace last year. I don't know if there's more grace for me. Oh, he forgave me 10 years ago. He forgave me yesterday. Don't you know? His grace never runs dry. His grace is inexhaustible. Where are we? As a body. Fractured? Broken? Hurting? Divided? Discouraged? Disillusioned? Confused? Alienated, perhaps, from each other? How about affection? Is that gone? Where are we, church? You and I know, to some degree. But our Savior knows perfectly. And the good news that He not only knows, He cares! Jesus cares! We sang that, didn't we? He cares! And he's not looking down at us this morning and saying, I'm done with you. I've taught you, look at where you are. I can't believe you're still sinning. I can't believe this. Sorry, nothing I can do. No, our Lord will never abandon us. His promise can be trusted his grace is ours his grace is sufficient do you believe that do we believe that brothers and sisters can we say amen to that do we believe that our love can do beyond what we are even asking and I know many of you are praying do we believe that God Jesus can give grace to Working us to accomplish more, far more than we can ever imagine. That yes, the days may be dark now, but I want to trust Jesus that the brightest days of our church are not behind us, but that they are ahead of us because our Savior stands. He is walking in the midst of His church to pour out grace for whatever we need. And he knows. Thomas does it. And Even if I did. But Jesus knows and he cares for all of us. He loves us. Maybe you are here this morning and you are wondering what in the world is this grace talk all about? You don't really know what grace means. You do hear people talk about that but what in the world is grace? Why is it such a big deal? This guy's going crazy over that thought of the grace of Jesus. Over some ancient text that talks of grace and sin. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe until this morning, maybe for the first time, you are bothered. By the reality of your sin and your guilt before God. Maybe this morning you find yourself even troubled by the fact that you're a sinner. That you're guilty before God. And you're wondering, what do I do? Do I clean myself up? Am I good enough? The good news for you. The good news that we've received. The good news that burns in our soul. Is that there is a Savior who saves sinners perfectly, who died on the cross in the place of sinners to pay in full their sin debt? You can crowd to Him to save you, trust Him, trust His payment on the cross. By faith, look to Jesus, He will save you. He will extend grace to you. He will pardon you of all of your sins, and not just that, but continue to work in you, giving you freedom from the things that have shackled you. It's not just grace, and we really could stop here this morning. There would be more than enough for us. But in this great benediction, Paul doesn't just ask for the grace of Jesus to be poured out on the church that he loves, on the church that desperately needs it. But he also prays that they would know the love of God the Father. May the love of God be with you all. Scripture tells us, Hold of God's love for his people. Of his love for those who were unworthy of his love. God shows his love for us. Romans 5.8 In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, no, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, 1 John 3.1. And earlier in this book, Paul speaks of the reconciling love of God toward the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the love of God for sinners. So as Paul considered the challenges before the church. As he made an appeal to them to fix that which is broken. To be of the same mind. To love each other deeply. To accept and embrace each other. He understand that for them to do that, the hearts would need to be flooded by the love of God, by the unconditional love of God, by the unending love of God. He understood that as they beheld the love that God, the father has lavished on them as unworthy of that love they are as undeserving as they are as they beheld the reality of such love that the heart would not just melt with gratitude and joy toward God but also now the hearts would move toward each other in love That that same love of the Father, that they would have that in their heart. That we would have that in our hearts. For each other. It's a love that is truly out of this world, brothers and sisters. Paul and Joseph, just like each other. Just be nice to each other. It's not the call. Pardon, forgive, embrace each other. Be family. And for that, you need the love of the Father. You need your cold hearts to become warm by a reality that is out of this world, the love of the Father. Have you been there? Of course I know no, you are. Where well, we think of God loving us. And you've been down and broken, and discouraged, and that reality just Warms your heart to know the love of God. The cold hearts would be warm. The hard hearts would be softened. It's hard to behold the love that Christ, that God has for you, has this forgiven you, and then to be like this. toward your brother and sister who's offended you. To be comfortable being distant. No, that cannot be. Doesn't mean ignoring wrongs. That would not be love at all, actually. It doesn't mean peacefully coexisting, no. It means the grace of God, the working in our hearts. To man that is broken, that we would truly forgive and accept forgiveness and yeah, cry and do all of that. truly move in love. Couples experience that, at least in a healthy marriage. In a healthy marriage, one of the things that's certain is as you go deep, you hurt deeply, right? And the love of God is what helps you. So it is in the family of God. We sin against each other. We hurt each other. And the more you love and you trust, the harder the hurt gets. And what do we need then? The love of God for us. A gracious love it is. The love that Paul has written before in his letters in 1 Corinthians 13. You no, know this you know chapter 13. And that's the love he wants us to have: a love that is marked by patience and kindness enduring hurt, enduring bearing, love that does not envy or boast, love that is not arrogant or rude, love that does not insist on his own way, love that is not irritable or resentful, love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but that rejoices in the truth, love that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes and endures all things, For the good of the other. Love that reflects the never-ending love of God. May God our Father then, brothers and sisters. Cause us to know his love deeply this morning. Individually and corporately. And may he help us to meet together under the umbrella of his love. And he. Not only mentions love of the Father and the grace of Jesus, the Apostle closes the benediction, asking that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with them all. Paul doesn't just write of the grace of Jesus in his letters or of the Father's love for his people. But he also emphasizes the centrality of the third person of the Trinity, the centrality of the, of, of the Holy Spirit and of his work in our lives as believers. He makes it clear that all believers, not just some, all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He goes so far as saying, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. You're not a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, it's because you, and you have the Holy Spirit. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know? It's like, before God, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? He reminds them that they were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. This Holy Spirit works, He regenerates, and then He places us, puts us, Into the body. He indwells us, he equips us with gifts for the edification of the church, and he empowers us to live holy lives and to serve as Christ's ambassadors together in the world. Paul is not ignoring the realities of the church. We can never ignore the realities, the dark realities of our lives. And we certainly cannot ignore the difficult struggles that we have as a church even. So because of those difficulties, and he does, he looks to God and he finds it necessary to call on him. To ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, that they would know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Their participation in the Holy Spirit. Now the wording itself may be seen as referring to our fellowship individually with the Holy Spirit. The wording allows for that. However, the context, the immediate context strongly suggests, I would say, makes it even beyond that, makes it pretty clear that the fellowship that Paul has in mind is not just fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but the fellowship that the Holy Spirit produces within the body. Obviously, they are not disconnected. One leads to the other. But the emphasis here is not on, just I'm in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but it is fellowship participation in body life. Our connection with each other. And that is something that the Holy Spirit produces. So Paul says, Holy Spirit, work in this body. Help them to see their connectedness to each other. Help them to experience that. In Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit came upon the church, what did we see? One of the things that we saw is that they experienced koinonia fellowship. Not just our oneness with God, but our oneness with each other, that we are one. We could lose sight of that, especially when things are hard, we start thinking that we are not related to each other, and the Spirit of God, part of what He does, is to help us be mindful of that very thing. Another thing that happens in our house sometimes, we'll give an in instructions to our kids. One of them is here, and then there will be a response. And a response will come from one of us, I won't say who. Do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> and I, we know what that means, and maybe you, you say that too. Sometimes we forget. So remember, we are your parents, we are your child. Sometimes we forget that we are Truly, family. If that's hard for you, put a sign in your house because I, I we really lose sight of that—that that we are joined together with a bond that is everlasting. Do you? Guys, do are we aware of that? That we are not joined with Christ only eternally, but we are joined with the rest of the body eternally. We are brothers and sisters. There is no bond that is stronger than the bond that we have as brothers and sisters. And the Holy Spirit works in us to help us be mindful of that. Be mindful of that objective oneness and to express that oneness. So instead of believers allowing, as Paul talks about in 11, for an alien spirit to bring chaos In division within the body, they need to experience the power, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. One that would result not in chaos or division, but in love and unity. May the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters, work in us, work to strengthen our bond. That we would suffer with each other. Paul talks in First Corinthians about when one part of the body suffers, the rest suffers. If I don't suffer, I am not affected. When you are in pain, something's wrong. May God, by the whole power of the Holy Spirit, strengthen our bond, our fellowship with each other. We would suffer together, would rejoice together that would labor together for the unity of the body, that would certainly refrain from doing anything that would harm the body. And where we have that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of Jesus, that we would seek healing and restoration and be quick even to confess our sins to each other so that there would be no hindrance to our fellowship with each other. Corinthian church was a very troubled church at the time of the writing of this benediction. Spend a long time, Lord, what does your people need? What do we need? Of course, every word of God is always applicable, but I believe that we needed to hear this today. I know I needed. This benediction is for us, church. We are in need of the grace of Jesus perhaps like never before. We need the love of God to be pulled out, to be communicated by the Holy Spirit. You know, that's one of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do that, to communicate the Father's love to us, to grip our hearts with that reality and to move us toward each other in love and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that would have strong bond in the gospel. Would love each other and partner together in the great work that Jesus has for us. He is good. He is gracious. As I read those words, I said, wow. (laughs) These are great words. And I thought, I know when I'm earnestly, oh Lord, please do it. And the thought was, well, Thomas, he is not reluctant to bless. Our God is eager to bless. So, church, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work of salvation. That is not just the work of a moment, but it is a work that you continue in us as, as you bring us home to heaven. When we will be like your son, without sin, without blemish, without spot. Until then, may you indeed help us. For our good. For the advancement of your work in and through us. And for the glory of your most worthy name. Amen. Amen.